I suppose that's what I mean when I'm talking about improvisation is it's it's coming from a informed place rather than because someone's once said to me what's the difference between improv and bullshitting uh, and I, I think it's that it comes from a place of knowledge rather than a place of trickery so I think that's really important actually because sometimes people think improvisation is just making up any old crap and getting away with it whereas actually what I think improvisation is is spontaneous wisdom as it were you know finding a place from knowledge when you're not quite sure what's going to happen hey 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 so glad you're here this is tracking yes and you are exactly where you're meant to be I'm your host, Liz Wilson, coach, creator, and round-the-clock philosopher. And this, my friends, is where the magic happens. Join me and my guests for stories that will inspire you to dial up your curiosity, fine-tune your courage and wisdom, and create an empowered relationship with whatever's happening now. Pippa Evans is an award-winning comedian, improviser, and the author of Improv Your Life, an improviser's guide to embracing whatever life throws at you. In her book, she shares the wisdom she teaches in her improv workshops about how to bring the spirit, spontaneity, and skill of improv to our everyday lives. On today's show, we talk about how the magic of improv can help you to let go of perfectionism, meet life with flexibility and creativity, and trust the adventure of the unknown. Pippa, thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Hello. We met in an improv course that you taught, an online improv course, and I had never taken an improv course before. And I was I was really interested to see that improv is exactly like tracking yes, which is my ethos for living life. Tracking yes is kind of a, a long form improv approach to life. And you were so charming and hilarious and fucking delightful that I just knew <laughs> I wanted to have you on the show to talk about, to talk about, well, because you've been doing improv for almost 20 years and you've been teaching a course called Improv Your Life to not just people who are in in the business of improv, but regular everyday folk. And you just wrote a book during lockdown called Improv Your Life. And and so you you have a clue about what it takes to do improv on the stage and how that can be applied to life. Yes. So yes, I've done it a lot and done it as a lot of as performer. Um, but also just found it so useful as a way of approaching life because life is one big long improvisation where we are just constantly making a choice. I mean, you know, you can think of it as either a long form improvisation or if those words don't jive for you, then it's more like a choose your own adventure book or something like that. You know, so you're always making choices and they can be small and they can be big um, and everywhere in between, but you are always making a choice and then having to follow through. So it's really kind of uh, this, yeah, yeah, what are you saying yes to? And how are you saying yes to it? You know, so are we joyfully saying yes to things? Are we saying yes to things with a no in the back of our head? Um, and then, and then ca- to count to kind of complement that is also no. You know, I'm very interested in no. When are we joyfully saying no because we um, we're making a choice to remove ourselves from something to make space for something else? Well, because you know, of course, you know the uh, was it um, a FOMO is the fear of missing out. And then one day I was on a train and I was like, what if we found the joy of missing out? What about Jomo? And I was like, that is a brilliant idea. We should turn that into a hashtag, hashtag Jomo. And I think I t- tweeted it, hashtag Jomo. We should be Jomoing, not FOMOing. And like, you know, 12 people liked it or something. I was like, there's something in this. And then I looked it up and of course, someone had already written a book. But yeah, so but I think, yeah, so the FOMO, the Jomo, yes and the no. So you're, I, I actually want to start with just reading something very short from the end of your book, because when I read this, it's, it's a beautiful summary of improv, improv as a way to, to, to live your life. And I want to, I just want to read it to launch us into it. 
because this is this, when I read this, I'm like that, that is the tracking yes ethos right there. So you say on the last page of your book, improv is the art of being okay. When the plan takes an unexpected turn, improv is the art of trusting your skills and your gut. Improv is the art of knowing yourself and being able to work in relationship with others. And, and there's that part I really want to get into with you because that's kind of like the heart of it. Um, improv is the art of failing forwards by embracing and reframing wisdom, which appears in the form of mistakes. And what I'm really curious about is how the hell you do all of this on stage in front of an audience in the moment on the fly. There's not time to think about it. Well, I, I think, to be honest, that's probably what it is. There's not time to think about it. You know, in life, we often have too much time to think about it. So that's when we get tied up in, that's when we get anxious. You know, an, an, anxiety is really being stuck in indecision, I feel. Like when I've been, when I've suffered from quite severe anxiety, it's it's being stuck in this vibrating place of not quite making a decision. Whereas when you're on stage, so the show I do just for your listeners is called Showstopper, the Improvised Musical. And we improvise a musical on stage our aim is to do it to the standard of the West End or Broadway, and um, and that will be in front of an audience of probably five six hundred people. So it's a big show with big promise. <laughs> <laughs> We're making it up, right? Um, but uh, I suppose uh, the, so. The way that trusting your skills and your gut comes in is. We're not saying we can do that without having done any preparation, right? We're not we're not accountants who've just come in and said we're going to improvise a musical. We are all performers who've studied musical theatre in some capacity, have studied acting, have studied um, how to move. Uh, we've trained as a team, you know, on our skills. Um, so, so that's what I mean by trusting your skills and your gut. We, can, we think we can do this because we have done the prep. The, the, the unknown quantity is what the audience will throw at us. So I think that's really important, actually, because sometimes people think improvisation is just making up any old crap and getting away with it. Whereas actually what I think improvisation is, is um, spontaneous wisdom, as it were, you know, finding a place from knowledge when when you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Another um, comparison I often make is to um, surgeons. So surgeons, you would never want your surgeon to say, I'm just going to improvise your surgery today. Don't, don't worry about it. I know stuff. Uh, what they will do <laughs> is they plan meticulously. However, if something goes wrong, they cut the wrong bits. There's something there they weren't expecting to find. You do want them in that moment to trust their skills and their gut that they're going to be able to, to continue with the surgery or save your life or whatever it is uh, that they need to do to make sure it's a successful as operation as they can so that's why I, I suppose that's what I mean when I'm talking about improvisation is it's it's coming from a informed place rather than um because someone's once said to me what's the difference between improv and bullshitting uh and I, I think it's that it comes from a place of knowledge rather than a place of um trickery well that brings me to because there's a bit of a complexity here you you say in your book that Improv really helped you with anxiety when you were younger. Yeah. And I have a question for you about that because there's a very specific kind of situation that pro provokes almost debilitating anxiety in me. And that is when I think that I'm going to be evaluated for something. And a couple situations that I can think of where that's really played out in my life are one, my dog and I for nine years were an avalanche rescue dog team. And every year we would have to have a an evaluation exam where they would set up a search site and we'd have 45 minutes to find these buried items and do it to a certain standard and in a certain order and way. And I was being watched and like clipboard checklist by RCMP officers, by cops, like the ultimate authority <laughs> figure. And they're checking to, you know, are you going to screw up? Because if you do, it could, it could make the difference between life and death for somebody. So that was one example. And then another situation where I experienced it was a 10 month long leadership training where eventually, you know, they said, okay, they gave us the reins and they said, you get in front of the class and you sit in the leader seat and we'll evaluate you and see how you're doing. 
And, and I would before, first of all, in the leadership situation, I, I do not want to go anywhere near that chair. Like I'm no way. And with the, with the avalanche training, I would be sick to my stomach for like three weeks before. And so then I would think the answer is over-prepare. And I would just like cramming at the very last minute. Still, what's one more thing I can learn to make sure that I get this right. But it doesn't work because the problem isn't not being prepared. The problem is feeling even if I am prepared, I'm still going to freeze. I'm going to get it wrong. So because of what you said a few minutes ago about the preparation is what enables you to do it. And what you said in your book about how the thing that to me is the most anxiety provoking being in front of an audience where they're going to evaluate how you're doing helped with your anxiety. How is that so? (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I think, um, because I think a lot of improvisers are perfectionists. And and that and that's what the danger is, isn't it? The danger is we prepare to the point where we we want the thing to be perfect, but it's impossible for it to be perfect because it, it there's too many things that are out of your control. It will never nothing nothing is perfect. Um, it cannot be perfect, even if it was all in your control. It still probably wouldn't be perfect. And uh, so I think bad news. This is bad exactly, news yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. It, it takes a while, doesn't it, to sort of accept it, and then, and then, you know, and also the other thing is, I think, um, uh, you know, life's not a, not linear. It's spiral, like as in, it's like a, it's moving forward, but it's in spirals, kind of like one step forward, two steps back, in a, in a sense. But you're kind of so you're always learning something, and then and then something trips you up, and you go back a bit, going, oh, I, I tried to make it perfect again. So the practice of improvisation is the practice of things not going how you wanted them to go. So, so as oh. in, so in, in, so in the scene, you and I do a scene together, um, and I think oh, it's going to be a brilliant scene about birds. And you come in and talk about a tractor, uh, and I have to accept that the scene is now maybe about tractors. Yeah, I can't go. No, 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 no. What? No, what was in my head, Liz, was that we talk about birds. Um, and so in that moment, I have to shift and I have to be OK with that shift. And actually what you and I create together will be perfect. We just have to redefine what perfect is. Perfect isn't without mistake, but it's perfect because it was created between the two of us. So what emerges is perfect because it's what came from us. Um, so, so I think that's really important is the practicing of, fail- of the failing that all the uh, failing I put in inverted commas for that one because it's not a failure, but it feels like you're failing. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. and, and it feels like you're saying what's, what's perfect is what's created between the two of you and the space, Yeah, the, the space and the audience and the life itself. It, it's like this collaboration of, of everything. It's, it's almost like getting out of, I, it's all about me and what I'm bringing and how I'm doing and how I'm, there's something that you're tapping into there. That's much bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a great improviser called Jill Bernard, and she has a great line, which is, if you don't want to be in your own head, get in someone else's. Uh, and I really love that line because it's about, yeah, it's about going, stop, if you know, if you're going a bit bonkers, as we often do, going, oh, I haven't done this, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to ruin it, whatever the inner monologue you're having is, actually, if I just focus on you, and I think, oh, I'm just going to really honour Liz in her podcast so that she feels like she got a great recording. I've taken the pressure off me actually in a way because all I'm in all I'm doing now is being in service to you so I don't have to be anxious about whether I'm brilliant in this podcast um I will be good enough in this podcast um for for what you want to do because uh, this podcast which is your podcast is therefore not all about me (laughs) you know so and I think that's the other thing is I I do think we're so trained a lot of us are trained I should say uh, in the western world particularly that it's all about us individual individuality um so individualism rather than individuality i think is the separation isn't it where it's all about me and i i and what can i achieve whereas improvisation is what can we achieve and i am a part of that we but we have we are both i i am i and we are we together so we go into this kind of philosophical space where we start to sound like weird poets but it's true it's absolutely true because um in, so in Showstopper, the improvised musical that I do, we have to train to be the star of the musical and the ensemble at once. So it means that I might do a big song all by myself and get the whole 
room giving me a standing ovation and then in the next scene I'm a tree yeah so so you have to be okay with slipping between these things and that can be really hard and when we first started the project a lot of us you know we're all performers so we're all kind of a little bit give me a round of applause please um we'd get upset if uh, you know I'll speak for myself I would get upset um if I wasn't a main part or if someone else was I heard an audience member saying someone else was the best in the show or something and it probably took three years to get over that because because you start to realize it's not about that it's about serving the bigger picture which is the show yeah well I had the opportunity to watch a recorded live performance of Showstopper back in March of 2020 right at the start of the pandemic the West End was shut down the night you guys were about to go on stage for a performance, like an hour before you were going to go on stage, you were all dressed, you were ready to go. And then the West End was shut down because of the Society of London Theatre was honoring right, yeah. the, yeah. You want to say a little bit more about how it got well, shut just, down? So, yes. Well, the, so the, the government, the government said, I think it was before they officially, officially had closed London down and they were still doing their, oh, we're not quite sure what we should do about this awful massive pandemic that's happening um so they had said people shouldn't really go to pubs and maybe they shouldn't really go out um so actually the society of london theaters made their own decision and said right we're going to close the west end because it's we we can't guarantee people's safety so they made that decision on a monday which um which might sound a bit bonkers to people but that is actually often a dark day for theatres they call it where the theatres are closed so the main shows would have their day off so they made that decision at about six o'clock I think it was or 6 30 p.m and our show was at 7 30 p.m and um, but we uh, are we were in our costumes in the dressing room and we said to the artistic director why don't we just live stream? Why don't we just live stream it? Why don't we just put our phones on and film it and put it on Instagram and Facebook? Because we're the only show in the West End who owns the full rights to their show, and um, so could make that decision that quickly. You know, anyone else like Lay Miz or something would have to go and ring up Cameron Macintosh and say, "Is it all right if we do this?" But because ours is completely original every time, there was no problem with us live streaming it. So that's why. So we just press go and. <laughs> put this show on Facebook it's got, it's got like thousands and thousands of thousands of views and it's just us kind of a little bit confused as to what is happening <laughs> but yeah we were the last show we were the last show to close on the West End oh my um, god well it was it was such a delight because it, I mean it's it's hilarious because it's chaos and the the iPhone cameras are in the wrong orientation and the all of a sudden the guy turns it's the guy who's filming turns it around and he's got himself filming on and he can't figure out how to turn it back <laughs> in the middle of the show but it was still you were still able to see the show like to appreciate what you guys do I mean it was so interesting to watch because I think it was about 45 minutes long maybe a little bit longer than that mm. and to watch you sustain the the improv like it like I've watched a lot of whose line is it anyway which is hilarious and it's this short form like 30 seconds to two minute skits and sketches but to sustain this unfolding story that just keeps getting legs and growing and becoming the next thing and more and more and more complex and you've got to hold all the threads of what what happened before and still roll with it. Now it's changing. Now it's, oh, you were my sister, but now you're my mother, right? Yeah. Like, so, so talk to me about how, what that's like, like what kind of muscle that takes or what it takes to, to sustain it for so long, the uncertainty and the evolution and the constant changing. Um, well, I think this, I, I like to think of it as, as many, you've just got many heads on at the same time, because You've got your character or characters that you're playing. So they're, they're right there, as, as let's give them one head. Uh, and then you've got the improviser yourself, the performer, who's there going, oh, did I make a bad choice? Oh, should I put that hat on? You know, those kind of questions. Um, and then you've got your um, strategizer who is going, um, right, 45 minutes, um, 45 minutes. Okay, it's 20 minutes in, we should probably do something interesting at this point you know so very practical kind of planning head um but the i think the hardest thing is flipping staying present in the moment whilst being able to do the strategizing 
So, so it, it's absolutely vital that I'm in the scene with you or my fellow performer and that I'm with my fellow performer completely and that I'm not completely logically figuring out what my choice should be. Like it should be an emotional response. I need to make sure I'm making an emotional response. However, I need to be in the right frame of mind to do that because say I'm anxious. And sometimes that does happen on stage as you, you're just having a bad day. And so you're thinking, Oh, I'm, I'm making really bad improv choices. The audience hates me, whatever it is. Again, the negative voice is in your head, being able to calm that voice down and again, return to the person who you're in the scene with, which I, I say in the book, but we talk about quite a lot in Showstopper, which is, you know, look into your partner's eyes. If you don't know what you're doing, if you feel lost, make sure you just connect with the person that you're working with. Because as soon as you do that, you remember that you're not by yourself. And I think so often we feel like we're completely on our own to make these decisions, these choices, when actually, again, in this improvised musical, I only have to make one offer, one tiny offer, and someone will pick it, pick it up and they will send me an offer back or they will send someone else the offer. And um, so just making making these tiny little choices rather than feeling the pressure of a 90 minute musical. So a normal show would be 90 minutes that we did it shorter because they were like, get out of the theater. <laughs> There's a pandemic on. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you can't go into the show going, oh, my goodness, what have we done? We've promised the West End audience a 90 minute long West End st- um, level. You know, if we'd start to really think about that, we, we would all kind of have a panic attack probably. But actually what you have to do is go, right, OK, this is where we are. What's the first thing I need to do? I need to respond to the title that the audience has given us. I need to make one offer. I need to look at my fellow players. I need to um, see what's going on. I need to listen to the musicians. And so it's just like really finding these little tiny steps that keep you present in the moment whilst still being able to every so often flip over to your strategy brain. Yeah. Yeah. That's making me think of a talk I once saw with John Cleese, who was talking about open and closed states and how the open state is the creative state where you're brainstorming and the closed state is execution where you're executing and how if those things start to get too entwined it doesn't work like you've got to be clear this is an open creative state and clear this is a closed execution state but in improv on the stage in the moment you are kind of it sounds like you are balancing it are you flipping back and forth or are they weaving together or how do you experience it I mean it's hard to it's kind of hard to explain now because I suppose I suppose when I first started it would have been much more flipping it would have been much more oh what time is it and when I was trying to do sort of the maths of the time I would probably lose my character a bit or you'd probably see me go dead in the face because I'd started to think so you can always see in an improv show when any anyone starts to think as in starts to go oh, what should I say back? Uh, and it's amazing, actually, because now, I, obviously, I teach so much improvisation now. I'll go, oh, you're thinking, stop thinking. Just be with a person and you'll know what to do. So I, I think I am, yeah, very much going through waves of both at all times. Yeah. It's like surfing or something, surfing on a on a wave, you know, so you're just there bobbing along and then every so often a wa- another wave comes along that says, you've got 20 minutes left. <laughs> you go, okay. Uh, yeah. It used to feel dramatic. It used to feel quite high anxiety, tense, worry. I'm going to ruin this show. But I think so much of that's about ego. You know, the minute you start leaving your ego behind and going, this show isn't all about me. You just take so much pressure off yourself. You know, and again, life, it's not all about, it's not all about you. I think that's a really important thing to say, but it's really hard to say without sounding like you're saying, by the way, Liz, you're really not important. <laughs> but it's funny, it's, there's this real thing about, like, give yourself a break. You're really not that important. Like, it's okay. Don't take that pressure off yourself. Unless you're the prime minister, um, you know, then, then you obviously have quite a lot of stuff on your shoulders. But most of us are not the prime minister. Um, and we have, of course, things that are important that we're doing. But I think we've put a lot of pressure on ourselves to um, be being amazing and unique at all times. Uh, when actually we can just be, and that's enough. Yeah. I love what one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, Pema Chodron, says, which is, don't take yourself so seriously. And and that's what you're so good at. Like, especially, you're also a comedian, right? So yeah. you're, 
you're in the business of not taking yourself so seriously. Well, yeah, but I, but I didn't use, I used to be quite terrible at taking myself far too seriously. So that's probably why I'm so passionate about not taking myself too seriously now, because I spent 10 years in absolute agony thinking I'm not, not even think I was important, like worrying that I had, uh, worrying that I was important. <laughs> but it, I could have been having so much more fun, you know, that's, a, I, you know, I do feel a sadness for those 10 years of, of um, agony that I put myself through, but also like such gratitude that I've managed to find a place where I go, oh yeah, that was, why did you do that to yourself? Let's not do that anymore. And that's really, really important actually. Because, yeah, well, I really do believe that, that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we do have to enjoy it. We have to enjoy life because if you're not, if you can't enjoy the one life that you have, that's just the, tra- that's the only tragedy, surely. I want to ask you a question about vulnerability on the stage because I was I was watching Middle Ditch and Schwartz. I was watching one episode of their long form. You mentioned them yeah. in your book, so I know you know of who they are. Yeah. And they were doing a 45-minute a show, long form improv. And at, as it goes, the, the complexity is building, the characters are building and shifting and changing. And very near the end of the show, it emerged in the scene that they were going to body swap and become each other. So they were going to now take on the whole identity of the opposite person of who they'd been playing for the whole show. And so that was all hilarious and convoluted and went through this whole thing and happened. And then they switched. And after they switched, Thomas Middleditch, and I I really believe this was authentic and in the moment said, I'm so fucking lost right now. I don't know who I am. Like I get who my name is and I get who I was, but I don't remember what was important to who, who I was. And I don't remember what's important to who I am now. So what am I even doing in this role, in this body, on this stage? And then Ben Schwartz was saying, it's okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. Here's who you are. Here's what you believe. Here's what used to matter. Here's what doesn't matter. And, and he, he wasn't getting it. Like he's not, I still know I'm so confused. And, and so Ben's talking him through it. And the impact that that had on me as an audience member was I was up there on the stage with them working through it. Remember? Cause you said this before and you did that before. And it brought me right up there with them. Yeah. What do you want to say about that? Um, yeah, well, so this is one of the joys of improvisation as a performance as well, is that um, it's the only art form, I believe, where the audience and the performer are discovering things at the same time. So um, so we're all having the same experiences, which is why when you see an improviser who's pre-planned something or has thought of something clever five minutes ago and then says it, the audience kind of feels cheated because that is kind of the opposite of vulnerability, isn't it? That's like putting up a little shield. I've got my I've got my funny joke that I wrote five minutes ago, which will not feel relevant anymore because it's not alive anymore. So those moments, exactly um, as you describe from Middle Ditch and Schwartz, or even the tiniest things. So you know, in a show, you say, "I forgot." I've forgotten your name, and someone in the audience goes, "It's David." You know. Uh, uh, <laughs> You, we often in Showstopper will ask the audience if there comes to a, a point where there's a kind of crossroads, should they go to the moon or should they not, you know, um, does he kill her, does he not? Uh, and they ask the audience, what, you know, what, sh- what should happen next? And the audience is like, oh, my God. So, so that mo- being able to give the gift to the audience of really showing them that, that, that A, it's completely being made up and B, they have some uh, ownership of this story too is brilliant. But also in a different box, the vulnerability box, to be able to stand on stage and say, oh, I'm just a human trying to make up a story is really important. And we've actually talked about this quite a lot about when something happens on stage that you're uncomfortable with, that actually um, in previous years, you know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, you would just sort of put up with stuff that happened on stage that maybe wasn't cool. And uh and now actually it'd be totally reasonable in an improv show to go, sorry, can we just uh, stop? Can we stop? Uh, what did you just say to me? And then just talk about whatever the thing that came up is. And again, that gives the audience some insight into um, what's going on, that, that we are, again, just two or three or however many people on stage performers. 
trying to create something together. But whenever humans try to create something together, there's always error. There's always a moment where someone says something that's uncomfortable or upsetting. And we often gloss over it, um, you know, particularly in Britain, where we're trained to be very polite at all times, <laughs> regardless of your mental health. Uh, so to have that moment is an amazing moment to have in front of an audience. Um, when we go and see a play, we know that they're acting, but we very rarely get to see the actor. Uh, the human. The human. The, yeah, sorry, yes. The, we never very rarely get to see the human. We only get to see the performance. Yeah. So you're, what you're talking about here, you, another way you phrase this in your book is leaving the stage, like the freedom to leave the stage. And you, mm. you named a, a couple of clear, this is a place to say no, where it went bad because someone didn't feel permission. You said in a scene, someone wanted to show they were angry and almost strangled you. Is that, okay. can you say about that? <laughs> Oh yeah, it was. Oh, it was, oh, it was just terrible. I just did it. I mean, it was so long ago now. You know, probably like fourteen years ago. And this person, yeah, just well, actually, they were they were trying to f- um, force me to go down on them in a scene. And this is again, this is things that happen on stage where people panic and they don't know what they're doing. So this person tried to force me and literally physically forced me. Uh, physically put their hands on me. Obviously, they're not actually trying to make me take their trousers off or anything, but yeah. but that mime this co- in the, in a comedy show, and it's like <laughs> who pays to see a comedy show where someone's being forced <laughs> to go down or something? And then and then they then they put um put their hands around my neck because I wouldn't do it, which of course again narratively makes logical sense. Um, oh, and so, but because I was so new, I just sort of went ah and then got annoyed and and you know complained about it to everyone but did never mentioned it whereas you know now I know now I would go uh, excuse me what sorry what that would never happen but you know every anyone who does improvisation has the right to leave the stage at any time and so often and again and again in life so often we stay on the stage we stay in the scene far far long after it's been it served us if it was ever serving us at all and I think that's a really important lesson to take out of the classroom as well is to go, God, how many things am I staying in? Because I feel like it would be rude not to, to, it would be um, difficult for me to leave. How can I find the courage? And, and do I know that I'm supported? Because that's the thing is, you know, if an improv teacher says at the beginning of every class, you have the right to leave the stage at any point if you, if you need to, if you want to. You know that you're going to be supported. But that's probably only come into teaching in the last couple of years, to be honest. You know? Really? Yeah, wow. and I, you know, and for myself as well, you know, we've probably only just started going. Wait a minute, some of this stuff, um, we haven't really thought about the safety and the boundaries of improvisation because it's always been fun and yes and you know, so so that's why there's quite a lot of conversations in in, in improv land as we call it about about no actually because. Um, anyone who's done an improv course will know you're constantly taught yes and it's a really great idea this accept and build but it's often misconstrued as you have to say yes which is why I often say no is a yes to yourself so you're still saying yes when you say no yeah yeah I'm just thinking of like because I can feel the pressure as a performer on the stage to keep the performance going and to keep the story going and and the the pressure that would put on you to not say no when it starts to feel like a no. And I'm also thinking like in marriages, people think I committed. And so you don't get to say no to this because you said you would, or I want to leave a job because I'm not happy, but I have to support my family. So I can't just leave my job. Like we, we have all of these external reasons why what's starting to feel like a no, like I'm wondering how do you, where's the sweet spot, right? Where you're starting to say, this does not feel right and good for me, but it might be just that stay with the scene because if you stay with the scene a bit longer, it's actually going to bend and turn and go somewhere interesting. So like, what's your barometer of, no, this is a hell no. This is not stay with this and let the creative process go where it goes. Like, how do you make that distinction? Well, I think that's a, I think it's just a really difficult question because I think it is so different for absolutely everyone. So, um, so I'm sort of reluctant in a way to say, "Oh, this is the you know," because you know it's it's impossible. It's an impossible question. 
Uh, but but my own feeling is often what happens is we feel a no in a sense or some kind of resistance to something and we wait until it becomes like the person with their hands around my neck I'm on the floor rather than in that moment saying oh I don't feel comfortable about this at this moment so we so we wait until it's escalated before we address it whereas maybe um <laughs> and yet every, like you say everyone's got different situations and um, but maybe it's it's that we need to voice some of our concerns a bit earlier with whoever we can trust to voice those with so that we're kind of starting to work out what it is but so often we leave ourselves on our own until a point of crisis and that's when we go oh, I've got I've got I've got to leave this marriage or I've got to sell the house or I've got to uh, I'm gonna go live in my car whatever it is and it might be actually quite an extreme reaction to something that probably could have started quite small. So that would be my sort of thought was, how early can we sort of flag that we're uncomfortable? And um, then and then take one step to exactly. express that or talk about it or start to bring it into. Yeah, I love that answer. It's that's such a great answer. Well, good. Very yeah. good. Well done, me. <laughs> well done, you. Yay, Pippa. Yay, Pippa. Okay. Oh, okay. After, this, after listening to this back, so I can take my own <laughs> you advice. You can hear how brilliant yeah. you are. That is also the funniest thing, though, isn't it? It's like you go, often when I'm talking, I go, that's very clever. I should, should definitely follow that through. <laughs> Jomo. I should follow that Jomo thing through. Jomo. That Jomo thing is very <laughs> clever. Okay. I want to talk about um, some of the 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 different structures that um, you talk about in improv that I think are so interesting to say, how does this play out in life? And one of them is status dynamic. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because you say that it's so valuable to be aware of the status dynamic and as you navigate a situation. So, so please okay, say, yeah. say more about this. Oh, I just, I would just think if everybody did a status workshop or status, whichever way you want to say it, depending where you uh, live. Wherever you live, status, status. Um, I think everyone would like shit. Would really, it would really mess up <laughs> the way status works. I think because we'd all be so aware. <laughs> like what? So, so status. You can think of status as being on a uh, on a dial, if you like, like a line, one to ten. Um, and this comes from. So I learned this through um, many an improv teacher who learns it from Keith Johnston, who is the godfather of improvisation in the UK, if you like, one of the pe people who wrote it down and made it make sense and really made it come alive in the UK. Anyway, and he, and he just talked about when he had some actors, whenever they were doing acting, it just didn't seem very realistic. But if he got them to play with their status a little bit, um, suddenly it came alive because we're constantly playing status games with each other and they can be extreme and they can be really tiny. Um, so like at the moment on this podcast, um, it's your podcast. So you have quite a lot of status, but I'm your guest. So I have a little bit of status too. And at the moment you're listening to me. So I have the highest status, but if you were to suddenly start talking, I would immediately be quiet because you have slightly the edge uh, because it's your space, if that makes sense. So I've come into your space, so I'm feeling like that's that's to do with me as well. That's me. I, I'm sort of would always be like, oh, it's your space, so I'm just going to be slightly um, subservient to you. And I don't mean that I come into the space going, I I've thought about what status I'm going to play. I'll just <laughs> notice that oh, I've put myself slightly lower than Liz in this moment. And and you'll notice it in all sorts of situations. Maybe you, if you go into a bank and you're asking for a loan. Um, just, I mean, does people still do that anymore? I don't know. But let, imagine that it's still 1996 and you go to a bank and you ask for a loan. Um, you're going to be slightly lower status, probably because you're asking a big company for a favor. However, if you were going in with a million dollars and deciding which kind of savings account you might like, they're going to be really subservient to you because they want your money. You know, so so just um, so using those examples, you can think of if you think of status on a scale of one to ten. Ten is like you're super super high status person, and I put two interesting people in that bracket. One would be Donald Trump, and one would be Dalai Lama. So they're both actually really high status but in completely different ways. Because I think sometimes we confuse high status with complete arsehole. Uh, and I, you do not have to be an arsehole to be high status. Barack Obama is another great example of a high status, um, decent dude. 
um, Michelle Obama as well, but basically all the Obamas. <laughs> They're at the top. Uh, Oprah, another really high status, um, decent human being. And then and then at the bottom, at the low, the lowest low status is like the smallest mouse that you can imagine. People who who can't literally don't want to be seen, cowering in the corner. Um, you'd probably put quite a lot of people who are, say, um, in the state system would would be considered to be quite low status in some sense because you've got your status that is your given by your job or your position but then there's also your status that you have as a person so you can have a high status in high internal status say a homeless person and you can have um, a low internal status doctor you know so you can have a doctor who really doesn't think much of themselves and you can have a yeah, a homeless person who's like, I'm freaking awesome. Um, uh, I'm going to make it one day, you know, really. So so I think status is really important because we're constantly playing these status interactions. And actually on my course, so when I do my Improv Your Life course, people often talk, I talk about friendships and say, do you, you know, in your friendship circle, do you have a friend who's sort of higher status than all the rest of you? And when they leave, then it's sort of a sense of relaxing. And so sort of checking in, like, what have you got friends who actually... Because if they are friends, you should be a similar status, really. But sometimes we hold on to these friends who maybe aren't <laughs> aren't particularly nice to us, um, and are in this higher status place, or uh, they're higher status, and we we want to stay with them because they give us they feel, it feels like we're, our status is raised by being with them. So and talking about that, I've had a lot of people actually say, "Come come back after a week." I've said, "You know, just go away and think about status," and they've gone. Oh, I've realized some of my friendships are have really strange status relationships in them, you know, or even relation, you know, relation all relationships. Oh, I've realized that this person I have a I, I shrink when they come in the room, but also maybe I, I've realized that when this person comes in the room, I don't behave very well. I like I raise my status a bit and because they and they make me feel a bit powerful. I don't know if you've watched Succession, but um, it's a great example. Anyone who's listening who's w- uh, watching Succession, it's an amazing status game of a show. So there's two characters called Greg and Tom. And Tom is amazing because he's just, he turns on a dime. He is the lowest status of the main characters. But then this character, Greg, joins and he is even lower than Tom. And Tom loves the fact that there's this one person that he can actually be higher status too and it's amazing so when he talks to Greg he talks to him like he's an absolute piece of shit and then when he's talking to the rest or everyone else he's really um, subservient so if anyone's watched Succession watch it again or next time you're watching an episode just look at the status relationships and it will amaze you and and it feels like there's an important distinction between internal status and external status yeah and, and because I feel like so the internal status you're immovable in in a way, right? Like you can't be pushed over. You can't be diminished by somebody else because you hold your status within you. And then, and then someone like Donald Trump, who it's all external and self-proclaimed, but not inner. It's a difference between self-proclaimed and true inner status. So he's always volatile and triggered and mad at everyone. And why are you attacking me? And why are you picking on me? And so there's something about there's like two kinds of status. Would you would you say it that way? Yeah. So um, a lot of the time we're getting our in, what we think is our inner status, but we're still reliant on, on external factors to give us that status. So what we want to do is get to a place where we truly believe our own inner status. But that and you're absolutely right. It's not it's it's not movable. Um, so your 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 status in a room might change because of who you are in that time, in that moment, you know, you might go into a room as the cleaner uh, and so you're low status because you're the cleaner and everyone else is, I know the Royal family, I mean, (laughs) putting examples out of my life. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, And then you might go home and suddenly your, your grandma and your cooking dinner for everyone and say you're high status because you're the head of the family, whatever, but your internal status remains the same because you don't take your own value from uh, the external world. Right. So you're not diminished by, uh, uh, so in the room of someone who has a higher status than you, you don't feel diminished by that when you have strong internal status. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you're not, you're not reliant, your position as whatever it is, um, cleaner or the, you know, the, the duke, um, 
is nothing to do with how you feel about uh, about your place in the world. Yeah. So because I'm imagining like you go in to ask for the bank loan and <clears throat> you're not the one with the million dollars. You're the one who really needs the money. Right. And you really yeah. hope that they will give you the money. So they're in the higher status and you're in the lower. But I'm wondering how if you're aware of that, how does that impact the dynamic and the well, exchange? I- well, I think if you if you know your own worth, I think that that because you know that ex, if you've got to the point where you can f- not be allowing external things to affect your own status, if you go into that bank and ask for a loan and the bank guy goes, no, can't have it, you're going to be disappointed because you needed it for whatever reason. But it doesn't make you feel think I'm a lesser person because you didn't give me that loan. So, it, so I think it's it's separating again we come back to yeah what what can i control what can i not control and really the only thing you control is your inner world and because there's something else you said that i want to bring in that you're responsible for the energy you bring into the space yeah yeah you you bring energy with you wherever you go you know how you come into a room like um i believe it was spider-man and and michelle obama who said <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you great talk power. to all the most interesting people <laughs> <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility and so I think once you become aware of these things and I think you become aware of them very young actually you don't, you don't really we become aware of them and then we kind of forget them you know when you're a kid and you suddenly realize you can absolutely destroy your parents by just screaming you know you can and you know you're doing it but you're just like I don't care. I'm good. I, I, this is so unfair. But now we're grown ups, and we have to go. Okay, I'm responsible. And sometimes I, I found myself in positions where I go, Oh, I think I've brought a really stinky attitude into this room, and I'm going to have to wipe and and move on. So again, it comes back to what can I do next? What can I do next? So even if you've made a slightly bad choice for whatever reason, you go into a meeting, and there's a person in that meeting that you can't freaking stand and you know we all have those people i'm sure i'm that person for some people <laughs> and uh, you go uh, oh, and, and rather than just going ah, got to work with this person so it's fine uh we go in with the face of like they're going to ruin everything and we allow that energy to come in and actually then we're the one ruining the meeting actually because we've come in going this is going to be the worst meeting because blah blah here. <laughs> uh, whereas actually if we're like I can't control the fat blah blah is going to be there. So I'm just going to have to deal with it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so energy is really important. What are you bringing into this space? You can't, again, you can't control what other people bring in the space, but you can control what you bring in the space. And it's hard. It's really hard. I think it's really important to remember if you, because I'm quite a jolly person. Uh, and I know sometimes I might come in a space and be like, boo, 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 hello, everybody. And someone's not in the mood for that. Um, how do I continue to be myself uh, and yet modify so that I'm not actively trying to distress anybody? Or, you know, or should I just carry on being like, boop, happy, happy? Um, is, <laughs> so, so, it's, so like, this is all constantly sort of assessing and reassessing and shifting and being willing to be agile, really, allow, like, you know, and, and knowing when it's, when it's costing you and when it's not costing you, I think it's really important because there's some modifications we have to make just to get on in this world. Um, and I, so I don't subscribe to the, you take me how you find me. I am who I am. I don't subscribe to that because I believe that that is, again, going into I, 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 and forgetting about the we. So the minute there's a we, there has to be an adjust. Oh. There has to be an adjust. Yeah. Okay. When you listen back, listen to that thing you just said. (laughs) There's a we, there has to be an adjust. So good. Okay. This is going to feel like kind of like a random out of left field question, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. And a friend of mine who knew I was interviewing you, who, who actually met you through the improv course asked me to ask this question. Can you speak to the value? Cause you're a, a comedian. You, you, or work in improv, you work in troops, you work in groups, but you also do your own um, stand-up comedy mm-hmm. and musical comedy mostly. By the way, you're, I'm going to post uh, this in the show notes, everyone. You do a five-minute gig at the London Palladium that is such a great display of your skill as a, as a solo 
comedian and performer. Um, and it, it just gets funnier and funnier as it goes. And, and the end is like, I was falling out of my chair laughing. It's so good. So check the show notes for that, you guys. But anyway, I digress. So here's the question. What, what is your perspective on the value of inappropriateness in comedy? How do you know where the line is, like where it gets drawn and when you would push it at all or or would you well I think for me I do I come from the land of entertainment more than the land of comedy and I think that's a really important distinction um, because yeah I don't think I'm really a stand-up comedian who might have more wish to push buttons I'm much more I was talking to a comedian once about this. We were talking, and I was like, "What do you think?" I said, "I feel like I'm an entertainer, not a, a stand-up comedian." She's a stand-up comedian, and we're like, "What's the difference? What do we think the difference is?" And I was saying, an entertainer um, gets a coach load of people uh, on the coach, and then they stand on the coach and they go, um, "All right, where do you all want to go? Come on, let's go!" Sing the song, and the comedian goes, "I've got a coach over here." You can come with me if you want. Yeah. <laughs> so it's much, you know, so one's really just, so I, at the end of the day, I just want everyone to have a good time. <laughs> I'm probably never going to do. Do, really- do, do, I'm Pippa, I'm here. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that's what they paid for. If you've come to see my show, that's what you're going to get. Yeah. So I, I think anything can, I do believe anything can be funny if you're making a really good point, I think the problem is so often jokes are so cheap. Uh, yeah, so I think if it's funny enough, you can you can say anything. <laughs> but but also I think like like with the energy in the room, if you're prepared to put it in the room, you need to be prepared to hear what comes back at you. And I think a lot of the time that's where we fall down. Actually, is we're not prepared for someone to say that wasn't okay and to listen to the why it wasn't okay we go straight often go straight to the reaction well I what do you know you're not a comedian you know rather than go okay well maybe I'm going to reassess that joke yeah but it does seem there's a role in comedy to truth tell like the jester the court jester or the fool where it it, there's a truth telling that requires crossing lines yeah, I I feel like that kind of argument gets used quite a lot for just telling racist jokes, though. Like, um, or I'm just saying how it is. I'm just saying I'm just pointing out what everyone's thinking. It's not the je- the point of the jester was to speak to power. You know, was to say to yeah. the king, um, was to tell the king what an absolute twat he was because he was the only one who could say it. You know, he's the only one who could say, "Oh, you all, oh, all, your, all the peasants don't have any potatoes because who guess who's eating the old kingy over here." Let's sing the king's potato song. Potatoes for the king, you know, and <laughs> that's what the jester did. And, and now, and now we're like, um, oh, let's talk about the immigrants. I'm like, it's not talking. It's not take talking to power. That's talking to the least powerful people in the country. So, yeah. So that's my concern about that argument: is it gets used now as a sort of uh, f- used for en- anything anything that's truth um, yeah and when, when we're in an age of what is truth um i think it's particularly particularly dangerous yeah okay switching gears let's talk about something you created called sunday assembly which is a weekly church for people who don't believe in god well, yeah, so just for your listeners, this is often the sort of handbrake turn that comes at the end of a podcast uh, where people go, what? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so uh, me and a comedian, Sanderson Jones, uh, in 2013, we started a um, alternative to church called Sunday Assembly uh, because we both recognized that by losing church, we'd lost something and that something was community and also just a space to think about something deep deeper that maybe you know about think about life and what is life 
And so, yeah, so we started Sunday Assembly in 2013. And the first one, we thought like 40 people would come and 300 people turned up or something. And then by the end of that year, I think there was 50 around the world. Um, and um, 50 Sunday Assemblies? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and wow. I think at, the, at its peak, it, there was 80 around the world, yeah. It was kind of bonkers and it just really exploded. The, the idea was that it was based on the church model. So we sang pop songs instead of um, hymns and we had a talk instead of a sermon and we had a poem instead of a reading. And we'd have someone, originally the slot was called Pippa is trying her best. but it, And then it became someone from the community coming up and talking about a, a thing they'd been trying to do and maybe it hadn't been going well or or it had gone well, or so it was just someone having a go at something or something they were struggling with. Or So I talked about trying to be a really good person by taking old people to a tea party, but being given this really grumpy old man and really like not liking him <laughs> and feeling bad that I was trying to do something good, but this guy was such an arsehole. <laughs> and so there's like that conflict we have when we're trying to do something kind and we think people should be grateful to us and they're like telling us to piss off or whatever. Um, and we'd have a moment of silence together as well. So we're like a reflective moment just to sit together. It was really beautiful. And it was getting to a point where the co- you know, as co-founders, we needed to kind of get out of the way. There's a thing when you create something that actually you have to get out of its own way because you start to choke it yourself. So yeah, so I, so I left about four years ago, but it's quite an amazing thing to have done really. And is it still... Is it still active in several countries and thriving? So there's, I'd say there's like 10 of them left now. And one of the struggles we had with it was that it's completely volunteer run. And anyone who's done any volunteer run things knows that it's just such a lot of time and energy. And we could never really find a way for people to pay for it. People wouldn't really give their money um, to support it, which um, kind of made me sad, really, because it gave people so much. Like I literally saw people's lives change for the better, but people wouldn't pay for it. So I think that's another big conversation we need to have with ourselves is like, what am I willing to put my money in for? Like, you know, everyone would go to the pub afterwards and and spend 10 pounds on beer, but they wouldn't put 10 pounds in the collection as it were. And and we think it was to do with it being too familiar to church because you've got quite a lot of people who had maybe left the church or been hurt by the church coming. So there was often this like slight tension of feels a bit like church. But yeah, what what are we willing to invest in, you know, when it comes to ourselves uh, and our community, you know, so really that money was to make sure it continued. And, you know, some people, some people did, but it, it would have been easier if we'd had a bit more generosity financially, but, you know, money doesn't solve everything at all. Um, what it was, I think what's amazing about it was we found, I mean, I met some really beautiful, beautiful people because we had a motto, which was live better, help often, wonder more. And it really spoke to people. Like people were like, yeah, I do. I do want to live. I do want to live my life better. It's like something missing. I do want to find a way to, to give back to my community, like people and, and I think that's, that's the reason it was popular in cities, particularly. So small places, it didn't tend to take off. But in cities, it tended to because you had this quite a lot of lonely people who hadn't found their tribe and who were looking for a way to give their amazing resources, their skills. And then Wondermore was, I want to engage with this world that we have. I don't just want to be staring at my computer screen. I don't just want to be going to work and then going to bed. I don't want to be just going to work and then getting drunk and then going to bed, you know, you know, the the life we lead. So yeah, so I think it was a really important thing. And and even if Sunday Assembly itself didn't succeed in its um entirety in terms of, you know, that we had 80 of them and, and now there's maybe 10. What it did do is show that there's a real hunger for that. And that there's different shapes that we can do community. It doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be church, church. Yeah. Well, the motto is incredible. Live better, help often, wonder more. Just even that, if you didn't go to Sunday assembly, if you just took that into your life. And then the way that you structured it and what you did with it is also incredible. So just the imagination to play with something like that 
to, and that it got traction. And then you also say in your, in your book, improv, the gift that it gives us is access to the collective imagination. And I thought that was such a wonderful thing to say, the collective imagination. Can you say more about what you mean by that? Um, for me, what it means is it gives you, it gives you permission to enjoy what you create with others rather than feeling like you have to do everything by yourself. So the idea that if you and I put our brains together, we will create something stronger and more interesting than just me on my own in a room and you on your own in a room. If we put six people together, even more so, if we put 100 people together, that's one way. And then I think the other way is it allows you to see what is happening in the collective imaginary in a more kind of global sense. So when you start to think of an idea, you might start to notice it coming up in other places. So you're willing to not be the only person who had that idea and be able to sort of tune into what other people are starting to create around the world. So for example, climate change might be a really good example climate action, I should say, rather than climate change, um, it is like you might be thinking, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to pay attention to what's happening. And, I, oh, I see that there's this, these people doing these great um, protests. Maybe, I'll, okay, I can see, I'm going to go and see what they're up to and together we are going to create something. Or I, I can see these people are having really interesting conversations and I think that's where I want to put my imagination so I can be having those conversations with those people. So I think it's yeah, partly about not fearing the collective and partly about being open and able to see what the collective is already doing. Yeah. And, and in this age of cancel culture and taking sides and polarizing and all of that, like that, that completely cut you off from the collective imagination. So it feels like you're also saying like, don't be enemies. Don't, don't, don't go into the, into the world as a self-contained um, enemy of different ideas and different possibilities, because that is the collective imagination. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so against, I'm so polarized against polarization. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I uh, yeah no, it's really awful and actually the polarization makes our creative work less less good like that sentence is not grammatically good um, in that we start to kind of write these very one-sided characters and create these one-sided stories you know whichever side you're on of whichever pole you're you're playing with at that point and so we lose all the nuance that is life like we're all so complicated the minute you realize you're a hypocrite you're doomed you know and we're all hypocrites we're all we're all hypocrites in our own little way because it's impossible not to be it's impossible we can't live like pure angels that's why (laughs) (laughs) imagine so so we're all really complicated and 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 that's why I feel like that's what the polarization is actually is this kind of comes back to perfection in a way we're trying to create this perfect image of ourselves this perfect way to be. There is no perfect way to be. We're all six billion humans trying to share a planet. Uh, we all have different ways of being and living. And all we can do is try and understand each other. That's all we can do. We don't have to agree with each other, but we do have to try and understand each other. I actually think that, so, so when having created Sunday Assembly, I think one of the things we really lost from losing religion you know and I don't know if you're religious Liz but is the language of brothers and sisters so so I'm probably talking from a white British perspective particularly that idea that if you call people your brothers and sisters so if you're religious for Christian religion which is what you're technically supposed to be in Britain (laughs) uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ you know we take away in Christ. So if I think of you, Liz, as my sister, instantly we're connected. So then even if you go and do something really vile, I still have to go, Liz, my sister, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and the same with like, so Boris Johnson, I, I, he drives me and like, really, 
his choices, the way he behaves, frustrate me so much. But if I say, brother <laughs> Boris, what are you doing? <laughs> it kind of hurts more, but it feels more real. Like it feels like you have to listen to me because you're my brother. Like how dare you make me represent us in this way? So I feel like if we all called each other brother and sister, <laughs> we'd actually find ourselves much, much easier to understand each other. My brother Donald, what the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh, that is awesome. That is actually the perfect, perfect statement to finish on. It's so good. Um, I do want to highly recommend you offer a drop-in online improv course. Yeah. And it's two hours of of Pippa guiding us through different improv exercises. And it's, I found it really, like it, it showed me all my like ugh, the, the hooks and the jags and the things that I get caught on. Um, and it was really nice to like have those revealed and see them in this playful, fun, can't get it perfect, can't get it wrong environment. So first of all, I want to highly recommend that you try at least one of those courses just to see how it lands for you. And so You've got one on December 18th, 2021 coming up. And then for those who listen after this, did you say every second Saturday of the month? Yes. Okay. And then you do a five-week course. Which is, I'm thinking I've got the next one starting in January. I can't remember which exact date, but it's all on my website, pepperovens.com. Okay. And the five-week course is the same as the drop-in, but deeper dive? Yeah. So it's five Tuesday nights in a row. And so obviously then I get to know you so I can start to go, Oh, have you noticed this? You know, and we would get, you know, get to know the people in your group and, and really have time to reflect on, on the exercises. And for the North American audience, Tuesday night in the UK is morning to midday, depending what your time zone is. And then your book, Improv Your Life, An Improviser's Guide to Embracing Whatever Life Throws at You. Uh, alternate subtitle could be the ultimate guide to tracking yes. Um, so I've been reading this book for the last month and it's got so many gems in it. It's, oh my God, your footnotes are just like, your footnotes are just opportunities for humor. I was laughing out loud through the whole book, but it's also got lots of cool exercises that you can do, some that you can do solo and some that you can do with another person. So get the book check out the improv course and and go to Pippa's site and see all the other amazing things she's up to. And thank you so much for, for showing up and sharing your humor and your charm and your wisdom. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. If you like the show, I'd so appreciate it if you could subscribe and share it with people you think would love it. It's an unpaid labor of love. And your support encourages me to keep it coming. You can find show notes, leave comments, and sign up for my newsletter at the podcast website, trackingyes.com. And you can find more of my work in the world at my coaching website, lizwilson.com. Talk to you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week and keep your compass lined up with yes.